Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 28 and 29, only two verses um, that sum up this letter recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And remember, this letter was written to these Gentile churches, so these non-Jewish churches who had come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the Apostle Paul and the other disciples. And from Jerusalem, the Jews who believed in Jesus went to these Gentile, these non-Jewish churches, and they said to these non-Jews, they said, you must obey the law of Moses and do everything in that law in order to be saved. So it's not just believing in Jesus, but you've got to keep the law as well. And that caused a dispute. And Paul says, no, we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We should live holy lives, but we're not saved by our trying to live holy. We're saved by Jesus. So it's just like what we talked about. Because we are saved, we should obey God. We're not trying to obey God in order to get saved. Because God has saved us, we should obey him. And so this is what this letter was about. How should we tell these non-Jewish believers to live? And so everybody came together in Jerusalem. All the Jewish believers came together. All the apostles of the church, the apostles of Jesus, the 12 disciples. uh, And they wrote this letter and then sent this letter to these non-Jewish churches in Asia. And here's the crux of what this letter said. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of the word, all of the prophets, all of the writings. We thank you for the letters that you have written to us through the hands of your servants. And you have preserved for us so that we too today would know how to walk and live and worship you and follow Jesus. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring your word alive to us and give us understanding so that we would be a people to give witness to Christ, the light in this dark world. We ask this for your glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So four things this very short letter says. Abstain from things offered to idols. Abstain from blood abstain from things strangled, and abstain from sexual immorality. These four brief points in this letter to the Gentiles address our devotion and our worship of God. It puts worship of God in the context of our daily living because this really boils down to three areas of life. Our worship, and our worship involves not just coming to together on a Sunday morning to sing songs, to hear the Word of God, to pray, to praise. But it talks about the food you eat, and it talks about sexual immorality. So idolatry, foods, and sexual immorality were three common areas of temptation 
that were all around in the daily lives of these believers. And believe it or not, 2,000 years later, we're dealing with the very same temptations. So we've already talked about idolatry specifically, and we touched on, we began talking about food. So let's look at these two points in between things offered to idols and sexual immorality, specifically blood and things strangled. Let's talk about these in the context of food because that's what they have to do with. Blood. It's necessary that you abstain from blood. In the context of food, specifically meat, blood was something that could not be avoided. And God gave very specific commandments about blood. Now remember, all of these come out of Leviticus. So this wasn't some foreign thing or some unknown thing. They didn't just pull these things out of the air. They took these four points from the Word of God, specifically what was known to the Jews as the Holiness Code recorded in Leviticus chapter 17 through chapter 26. It lays out what's known as the Holiness Code, how we are to live our lives. And this is where they got these points from. So these are grounded, these are founded in the Word of God. Let me read to you Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. It says, Whatever a man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. We've all seen, you know, the movies, you know, uh, you know where whether it's the deer hunter or these movies where, you know, the rite of passages, you, you kill an animal and they, they bleed it out into a cup and then, you know, the, 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 the young man who's never killed an animal before, he's got to drink that blood. Uh, the Bible says don't do that. The Bible says that's a no-no. Now, this doesn't mean I like my steak medium rare, which my wife calls bloody, but it's not bloody. So this doesn't mean you can't have your steak medium rare, and it might be red in the middle. That's not necessarily what it's talking about, because that animal has already been slaughtered and bled out. I know this is a real pleasant topic for all of you today, but it's the Word of God. You know, this is the problem in the church today. We don't like to talk about unpleasant things, so we just pass over them. But you know what? This was the letter written to the church. Abstain from blood. Abstain from things strangled. Well, what does that have to do with us? Because the problem is, people are saying today, this has nothing to do with us today because we don't live in that day and age. But that is an absolute falsehood. That's a lie, as we would say, from the pit of hell. Because it absolutely applies to us today in what it is communicating. And this is what we're going to talk about today. When God says the life is in the blood, he's making a statement 
much greater than we may realize. He's not referring to biology, he's referring to theology. For it is the blood, God says, that makes atonement for the soul. All the blood of bulls and goats given upon the altar and sacrificed to God spoke of only one blood that would one day be shed. So from the time of Abraham, from the time of Moses, when the law was given and the tabernacle was built and the temple was built and every day in the tabernacle and every day in the temple until Jesus came, that system of worship had been going on for 1,500 years when Jesus was born. And for 1,500 years, every day in the tabernacle and every day in the temple, at 9 a.m. in the morning and at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, a lamb was slaughtered and sacrificed to God, not counting all the other sacrifices that would be brought because of the sins that were committed. And you realize that the tabernacle and the temple were really a bloody place. And that was on purpose. Because where did death come from? Where did the shedding of blood come from? Where was the first recorded shedding of blood in the Bible? We might say it was the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, but I would beg to differ with you. I believe the first record of the shedding of blood was when the Bible says God comes to Adam and Eve and they're hiding in the fig tree with fig leaves sewn together to cover their nakedness. And then the whole thing goes with the pronouncement of the curse. And the Bible says that when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden before he drove them out, he clothed them with tunics of skin. So God said to Adam and Eve, you can't cover yourself with fig trees, with fig leaves, or with things you made yourself. You can't cover your sin with the works of your own hand. That is not sufficient. What did we just read in Leviticus? The blood is for the atonement of your souls. What did God do? Because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's sin, Animals had to die so that they could be covered with tunics of skin. And it wasn't lost on Adam and Eve that someone had to die, that blood was shed as a result of their sin. Where did Abel know to bring a lamb in sacrifice to God? Versus Cain, who brought what? The works of his hands. And what did God say to Cain? That offering is not acceptable to me. And that wasn't God being mean to Cain, who worked really hard to grow those vegetables. That was God being graceful to Cain, who said, Cain, I cannot let you believe this lie that the works of your hands somehow will be acceptable to me and can atone for your shortcomings. Impossible. What does Abel do? Abel brings the life of another. What was Adam and Eve covered with? The life of another. So from that very first sacrifice in the garden, when God sacrificed an animal to cover Adam and Eve, to show that only the life of another can cover, indeed can take away your sin. From that time to Abraham, to Moses, 
All through the time of the tabernacle, all through the time of the temple, every lamb, every goat, every bull that was ever sacrificed, that blood, all of that blood that was ever shed only spoke of one blood. The one blood that was prophesied to come in Genesis 3.15 when God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and he will, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That was the prophecy of Jesus, the coming Savior. And 4,000 years later, Jesus comes. You know 4,000 years is a long time to wait. And you think our life, as long as we can live on this earth, we're not going to live anywhere close to that. And this is why it is important for us, especially in the day that we're living, in the time that we're living, with so much darkness, with so much uncertainty, that we live life with a long view, that we're not just looking at the immediate. There are no quick fixes we didn't get in the situation we're in overnight, and we're not going to get out overnight. Though God can do amazing and powerful things, we need to understand, just like the Bible says, it's line upon line, precept upon precept. The prophecy comes in the garden, and 4,000 years later, finally the Savior is born. The seed of the woman comes and crushes the head of the serpent. And it was the shedding of the blood of Jesus that every bull, every goat, every lamb that was ever sacrificed to God, it was that blood, the blood of Christ, that all of those sacrifices spoke of. Blood has meaning beyond biology. Blood always spoke of Christ and the blood that would necessarily be shed for our sin. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from our sin and give us life. No other blood can atone for our sin, not even our own. God put the life in the blood. Through the shed blood of Jesus, God has given us eternal life. And Christ shed his blood and gave his life and we receive his life in exchange for our own. This is what we call the great exchange. And we are the great beneficiaries of that exchange. Christ poured out his blood and so poured out his life to redeem his people. The blood of Christ has overcome sin and the resurrection of Christ has overcome death. And he has given to us life. The shedding of blood reminds us of the death that sin brings into this world. That's why God covered them with tunics of skin, because God wanted them to understand your sin, your disobedience brought death. That was what God said. The moment you eat of it, you shall die. We're going to read this in just a little bit, the lie from the serpent, who's still lying to us today who still takes the truth of God and twists it to make it sound almost right. And if we're not careful, we may believe that he's actually telling us the truth. But it is an absolute lie and perversion of God's word. God has given us life through the shed blood of Jesus. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. 
So God says it is necessary that you abstain from blood because blood, the life is in the blood. But more than the biology of your blood or my blood, the life is in the blood. It is the blood of Christ that gives to us eternal life. And that's why the blood was offered back to God. Then he says it's necessary that you abstain from things strangled. Now, that might sound kind of strange, but this particular point also has to do with blood. Man was forbidden to eat meat, the meat of any animal that did not have its blood let out. Leviticus 17, 13, and 14. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts or catches any animal or bird that may be eaten... He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood, and whoever eats it shall be cut off. An animal strangled implies an animal that has not shed its blood. The blood hasn't been shed from it. That animal would violate the laws governing the consumption of blood. Shedding the animal's blood was necessary, God says, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. And what was it? It was to be poured out upon the ground and covered up with dust. It's interesting. God said, when Cain murdered Abel, he says, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. And when God tells the Pharisees, recorded for us in Matthew 23, when Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon them and upon Jerusalem, he says, upon you shall come all the judgment for all the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel all the way back to the first sons of Adam, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. In other words, Jesus said, all of that blood, all of that righteous blood that was shed, I know it. I hear its cry from the ground. The life in the blood reminds us that life comes from God. This is why it's offered back to God. Our food habits today are very different. It's very different from even other parts of the world. Other parts of the world, their food habits may be very similar to what we're reading here today. I mean, you can, you can go south a few hundred miles and go to open-air meat markets where slaughtered animals are hanging in the, in the meat market right out there in the hot sun waiting to be bought. Our food habits are very different, but the truth is still relevant for us today. We're not offering our animals or our crops literally to God today as was taking place back then. But we do, in a sense, offer them to God because we offer our thanks to God. We offer thanks for our food, or we should It's very easy in the culture that we live in to take things for granted. Do you know it's said, and I believe this is true, many children growing up in America have no idea where their food comes from. 
Where does it come from? It comes from the store. Or now it comes from Amazon. Well, a man brings my food. He delivers it to my house in a box with a smiley face on it. But they have no idea in reality where that food comes from. We offer our thanks to God. We thank God for our food and we are offering to him a sacrifice of praise from the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We're still offering. The offering of that animal, the offering of that crop was to thank God for providing it. The same thing we do when we pray for our food. The life is in the blood, and the blood was offered to God. Life came from God, and to God it's offered back. All these laws and ordinances pointed to Christ. Now Christ has come and has shed his blood and given his life to redeem all who trust in his name. God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So God seeks today not dead sacrifices, not sacrifices like, like we might think of as we read this letter, God desires living sacrifices. In Christ, we are called living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes in his letter, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So now in Christ, we offer up ourselves to God as living sacrifices. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. And as we offer up the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips continually, giving thanks to his name. I was driving back to church today after I went and picked up Sarah and Erica and we're driving down our, our beloved street here, Mills Street, which just about tears your car up <laughs> if you go more than a crawl. But I thought and I said, but you know what? At least we have streets. There's some parts of the world they don't even have roads, much less streets. I remember the first time I went to Acuna, Mexico, before it had advanced. And you go back into the, the neighborhoods where the people lived in the cardboard houses that they would get from the dump, literally cardboard houses. There weren't any roads. You just drove up and down ravines and dry creeks. A few years later, you go back and they grade those ravines and dry creeks and call them roads. The point is this. We have so much to be thankful for, but it's so easy to take those things for granted. This is what we're offering up to God. The sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. God doesn't desire the blood of animals. He wants living sacrifices. He wants our life lived in honor of him. Jesus already gave his blood. There's no other blood that can be given to cleanse us and give us eternal life. There is no other blood, only the blood of Jesus. 
In giving his life on the cross through death, Christ gives us life. As we look to him trusting his as the only blood that could be offered to take away our sin and death, he promises us the eternal life of salvation by grace through faith in him. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if we can work our way to heaven, if we can work our way to salvation, then why did Jesus come and die on the cross? And this was the message to the Gentiles. This is the message to us all. There is no life outside of Christ. There is no other blood. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. And it washes all of them away. Our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin. There is no other hope. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. So what should we do? Turn to Jesus, trust him, be saved because he alone is our hope now and for eternity. In Christ, we are never without hope. Jesus has done what we could never do for ourselves. He fulfilled the law and atoned for our sin. So Jesus fulfilled the law. So this goes to the crux of this letter in which those Jews wrote to these Gentiles, these non-Jewish believers, and says, you don't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Do these things. Don't partake of things offered to idols, abstain from blood, things strangled, and abstain from sexual immorality. It might sound like four very simple things, but it's very comprehensive. So why do we not have to keep the law today? Well, the short answer is because Jesus fulfilled it. Because we could never keep it. And we must never believe that God gave the law to us as a means for us to be saved. In fact, God gave the law to us to show us that it's impossible for us to save ourselves through our works. God made it impossible for us to keep the law on purpose. You mean God gave us something impossible to do and he knew it was impossible? Absolutely. That was the whole point. That we would see the impossibility of keeping the law and cry out to God for his mercy. And that mercy is given to us in Jesus Christ. Understanding Jesus and his relationship to the law is important for us in understanding our relationship to God and to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. We had no hope of walking before God and fulfilling God's perfect law. Only Jesus could do that, and only Jesus was ever meant to do that. Even Adam was not put in the garden with the expectation that he would live a perfect life before God. God knew. Adam was never meant to be the one. It wasn't meant to be the first Adam. It was always meant to be the last Adam. It wasn't meant to be the first man. It was always meant to be the second man, Jesus Christ. And this is the way Paul lays it out. 
in 1 Corinthians 15. You can go there and read it for yourself, but it's all right there. Only Jesus could do that, and he did that. He kept the law perfectly, sinless. We trust in his work, not our own. This is the work of God. When they asked Jesus, when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes in John 6, and they said, Jesus, we want to do those works too. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. In other words, the work of God is to believe on Jesus. Our faith in Jesus, though, is not void of work. Our faith in Jesus must produce the works that show we actually are his. It's like your fruit tree, if you have one. You plant it to produce fruit. And you know it's a fruit tree when it does what? When it produces fruit. You don't have to wonder anymore if it's a fruit tree. So the Christian is not doing works in order to be saved because the Christian is saved by grace. Through faith, his life will produce fruit just like your peach tree, your apple tree, your orange tree, your lemon tree are going to produce lemons because that's what they do. What does the Christian do? The Christian produces good works, fruit, spiritual fruit. That's what Christians do. That's how you know they're Christians. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't destroy it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The letter from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem council, is perfectly consistent with this truth and the teachings of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That's like saying not one period, not one comma. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you right now, there's not one of us here on our best day that can measure up to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in terms of their outward ability to keep the law. Outwardly, they had it down. Jesus wasn't talking about their outward ability to keep it. He was talking about their inward ability. This goes to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Moses said, you shall not commit adultery. And all the Pharisees said, amen, brother. But Jesus said, but I say to you, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he is guilty of the same. And they all went, ooh. Moses said, you shall not commit murder, but I say, if you say in your heart of your brother, you fool, you have committed murder. And it wasn't Jesus raising the bar. Some people today believe Jesus came and lowered the bar. You know, Jesus, the flower child hippie, who's just about peace and love. No, Jesus didn't lower the bar. Jesus didn't raise the bar. Jesus identified right where the bar was. Because God's God's demand was always perfection, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Can you do that? I can't. 
There was only one man who ever walked this earth that was able to do that. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the law and he teaches us how to do, how we are to apply it. We're not to be like the Pharisees, clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. And we're not to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do on the outside because I've got a heart for God. I love God, so it doesn't matter. My sexual immorality doesn't matter. Anything I do out here goes because I have Jesus in my heart. No, if you have Jesus in your heart, then the outside is going to come in line too. We're imperfect. We're failed beings. But the point is, if you are of the true vine, you're going to produce the fruit of the vine. There were dis- they, those children of God. God called his people to be distinct from all the other nations, and they were distinct in the way they lived and the way they worshiped. Jew and Gentile. There was a difference. But now in Christ, the Bible says there's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. The law is now fulfilled in Christ. God has made both Jew and Gentile one in Christ. This is important that we understand this so that we do not think that there is a a way of salvation for the Jew and another way of salvation for the Gentile. Some people actually teach that too today. And that is false. Because some people want to distinguish the Jew from the Gentile or the Jew from the church, Israel from the church, yet the Bible nowhere makes that distinction. Paul doesn't make that distinction. Jesus doesn't make that distinction. The Old Testament prophets don't make that distinction when you see that all was fulfilled in Christ. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, I'm going to add some things here so you'll understand. So now in Christ Jesus, you, meaning Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself In Jesus Christ, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were afar off, and to those Jews who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. There is not a distinction now. We are one in Christ. And this was the point for this Jerusalem council writing to these Gentiles. You don't have to keep the law. Jesus has already kept the law. You look to Jesus for your salvation. But you live a life consistent with who Jesus is is. Well, who is Jesus? He is the man that walked in holiness. He is the man that walked in righteousness. He is the man that walked in sinlessness. Now, we'll never walk in sinlessness, but should we strive to live lives free of sin? Yes, we should. Well, what do we do when we sin? Because we're all going to sin. We cry out to God to have mercy on us in Jesus Christ, because we're not trusting in our ability to live sinless. 
We're trusting that Jesus has already lived that sinless life, and he saved us by his grace through faith in him. By grace through faith in Christ, we are saved. Now all who are in Christ are made one in him. We are in this world, but we are no longer of this world. Now in Christ, our life should reveal a difference from those who are of this world. Jesus calls clean what was once called unclean. That first applies to us. God did not change his mind. God changed us. Do you see that? God didn't change his mind about Gentiles. Say, well, I guess after all, because it's all throughout the Old Testament that they would be saved. God didn't change his mind. God changed us. God certainly does not change his mind about sin. The Bible clearly defines sin. Therefore, we are to define sin according to God's word, not according to the culture's acceptance or definition of sin. God declared all people clean. This meant that both Jew and Gentile could be saved. The gospel is to be preached to every creature, and we are commanded to disciple all the nations. The whole thing about food laws and blood and all the other quirky-sounding regulations, and there's lots of them in there if you read that section of Leviticus, were not simply about health codes the Israelites were too ignorant to understand. That's what people say today. Well, you know, those, uh, since, we, since we obviously believe in evolution, and man is getting smarter and smarter and smarter, and you can tell by our culture, right, that that's happening. They were just too ignorant to really understand what God wanted them to know, so he just gave them a bunch of commands and threatened them with hell so that they would obey it, not really understanding that the, he was really protecting them. That's actually what people teach today in the church. There's pastors who teach that, who say, now you don't have to pay attention to what God says about sexual immorality. You can marry whoever you want. You can sleep with whoever you want. As long as you understand love is love. No, the Bible doesn't say love is love. You know what the Bible says? God is love. And what does the Bible say about God? God does not change. Much of what is taught in many churches and many seminaries today is not consistent with the Word of God. Many teach that the law of God and the rest of the Bible are disconnected stories that do not fit together and do not apply in whole or even in part to our modern age. There is much talk about how we have spiritually evolved. It is commonly said today that what once applied to an ignorant, nomadic people no longer applies to us today. In other words, we have evolved beyond God's Word. This all sounds very familiar if you know your Bible the beginning of your Bible. Now we possess knowledge that man did not always possess. Man was once ignorant, but now we're enlightened. This should sound very familiar, in fact. This is the original lie that led to our original sin. Listen to what the serpent says to Adam and to Eve in the garden. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God doesn't want you to know what he knows. God doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding back. He's holding out on you. Trust me, you won't die. The lie today is the same as yesterday. The lie is that we need more knowledge and more laws in order to save ourselves. This is what they were telling the Gentiles. You have to keep the law to be saved. What are we saying today? We need more knowledge. We need better knowledge. We need more laws. Now, literally, today, what do we need? We need more laws. Man is too stupid to exercise caution on his own. We need more laws. We need more mandates. We need to, make, we need to protect man from himself. This all comes from our original sin. In other words, with the correct knowledge and the correct laws, we can be like God. In fact, we no longer need a mythical God. We only need ourselves. This is humanism, which is in fact paganism at its core. Humanism is man taking the place of God, man putting himself in God's place to become his own God. This is man's original sin, to become like God. That's exactly what the serpent said to Eve, and Adam listened. You'll be like God. And this is who man is today. This is who man seeks to be today. This is why we reject God and we reject God's word because we, we want to be God. We need knowledge, but we need knowledge that's born out of love, the love of God. And the worship of God. We do not need knowledge to replace God, but rather to see God for who He is and to know Him as the Savior and the sovereign Lord over all things. God did not change His mind about sin or about food or about any other thing. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that God does not change, Malachi 3 6, and that Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. God calls out a people from among the nations and commends them to be different. He commands them to be different in how they are to live their lives. He commands His people to give witness to Him in holiness and righteousness and in justice and in mercy. Not to become saved, but because He has saved us. In Christ, we are no longer bound by the law of sin and death, but we are now bound by the law of the spirit of life in Christ. The law of Moses revealed our bondage to sin and death, not because the law was bad, but because we were bad. And we were weak, and we were incapable of living up to the righteous standard of God. Christ set us free from the law, not to live lawless, but to live holy in Him. His Word, His Scripture guides us through the power of the Holy Spirit into that holiness that He desires us as His children to live in and to walk in. 
We're going to stop right there. And then next week, we're going to pick up there. And we're going to talk about how Jesus, in his fulfillment of the law, declared foods clean. So the question is often, if we can remember, if we can eat shrimp and pork today and not suffer the wrath of God, why can't I be in a same-sex relationship or a same-sex marriage? Why can't I be in a homosexual relationship and, and, not, and worry about the, the wrath of God? Because it was all right there in Leviticus. Well, because God is very clear in his word. Jesus was very clear of what is clean and what is not clean. And that admonition of abstain from sexual immorality applied to every form of sexual immorality listed in the holiness code of, Le of Leviticus. But when it comes to food, it was don't eat blood and don't eat things strangled. But anything and everything else, you're free to eat. It's legal to eat it. Not because the Jerusalem Council said so, but because God said so. Reaffirmed by Jesus. We'll look at that next week. So how does God want us to live? He wants us to live holy. And how do we do that? We do that by following Jesus. Not because we're perfect, because he's perfect. And he helps us. This is a table of thanksgiving. This is not a table for perfect people. This is a table for flawed people. Forgiven. Washed clean by the blood of Jesus. This is a table for people who are trusting in the perfection of Jesus. In the face of their own failures and their own imperfection. This is a table for people trusting in the sinless life of Jesus. Knowing that their lives are full of sin. So if you count yourself a member of the body of Christ, you don't have to be a member of this particular local church, but if you count yourself a believer in Jesus, a member of his covenant people, a member of his church, trusting in his sinless perfection, knowing that you have received the grace of God and it is made manifest through your faith, your trust in Jesus, then you are welcome come to this table. You are welcome to Jesus. I like to remind you that Christ is present at this table, not because that bread turns into his body or that cup turns into his blood. Christ is present at that table because you are present in this room, because the scripture teaches that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the body of Christ. You are the presence of Christ in the earth. Let's stand. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you walking in that fullness? And the measure of that fullness is not seen in some spiritual gift that you may exercise, though I believe in spiritual gifts. We pray for healing. We pray for miracles. We pray for those things. We believe for those things. But the measure of the Spirit in the life of the believer is the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The question is, what does the world see when it sees you? All things being the same, your clothes, your shoes, your pants, your shirt, your hair, 
all things being the same, does the world know there's something different about you? Maybe they can't put their finger on it. Maybe they don't know what it is, but they know there's something different about you. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the hope the world needs. That's the light the world needs. And we have been filled with the Spirit, saved by God to go out into this world to be lights in the darkness. This is not the place people get saved, though I pray you get saved if you're not saved here. This is the place for the saved to be equipped to go out into the world to those who are lost. If you haven't noticed, lost people aren't beating down the door of the church to get in. They're lost because they don't believe, they don't trust. But those who believe and those who trust are commanded to go, therefore, and make disciples. So go and let your light shine. Go and let Christ in you be seen and heard and known by those you come in contact with. Pray that God would use you in mighty ways and in small ways to make Christ known to the world around you. And then take them by the hand and bring them to church with you. And get them equipped so they can go back out and do the same thing. Amen? Amen. That's your charge. That's what Jesus commands us to do.